Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. A face value read of of the Gospels without needing any theological degree or any of that side by side with this book, it's you're going to notice a completely different message. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I'm so glad you've joined us today. We're going to be talking with Hilary Ferrer and TC Cannon, doing a little book review of Jen Hatmaker's new book, Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire, The Guide to Being Glorious You. So please take a moment and subscribe on YouTube and be sure and click the bell icon to make sure you get notifications every time we release a new video because we've got some really interesting conversations coming up in future videos and you're not going to want to miss those. And so Hillary and TC, welcome. It's so great to have you on with me today. Hi. Yay. Love being back. (laughs) Yes. Well, you actually, you've both been on my podcast before. TC to talk Mm -hmm. about your book, Lord, Where's My Calling? And Hillary to talk about the Mama Bear book, which all three of us contributed to. But it was kind of your baby. You're the general editor and the leader of that whole endeavor. Uh, But both of you are authors and speakers. And so when I was going to read this book, uh, because I'm writing a review for the Gospel Coalition for the the Jen Hatmaker book, mm-hmm. I thought of both of you because I I think uh, Hillary, with your experience in apologetics, and I just think you have such a good analytical mind when sort of dissecting ideas like this. And then TC, same great thinker, but also you have some really. Uh, significant boots on the ground experience with women and women's ministry. Like we were talking about this before we went on the air. You you have looked into the eyes of women who are probably the target audience for a book like this. And you have witnessed over years and years of doing women's ministry, how these ideas are going to affect someone like that. And so I think both of you are going to have really unique wisdom to bring to this subject. And so, uh, 
The episode that aired before this one was my review of Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, and I couldn't help but notice there's a lot of similarities. There's a bit of a similarity in worldview. There's a similar journey they both went on. Interestingly, they're the same age, Jen Hatmaker and Glennon Doyle, and same age that I am. So when they're referencing things from evangelical subculture of growing up, it, I really relate with that because I had a lot of those same experiences. And so uh, Jen's book uses more Christian-type language, more exclusively Christian language than Glennon's book. But Jen's is interesting le interestingly less mystical. It's more pragmatic. Um, mm -hmm. But they both address similar problems. And so how the book is laid out is each chapter asks a question. So questions like, who am I? What do I need? Uh, what I want? What I believe? And so she starts diving into some of those questions. And so in our review today, before we dive into specifics, uh, I want to ask each of you for just your general impressions of the book. What what do you think she's trying to accomplish? What's the overall message, the overarching thoughts you had as you were reading it? And then we can dive deeper. So, Hillary, I'll go to you first. What, what did you think uh, of the book? <clears throat> so I had several thoughts on this, um, and I, I kind of marked a couple places in the book. I, I try to sit down and think, okay, if I were to summarize this book in one sentence, how would I summarize it? And I just sat there and like, it actually came pretty quickly to me. And it is the pursuit of productive pleasure is the highest good. Mm. So first off, she keeps mentioning how this is our one life. This is our one life. This is kind of a side note, but I want to say this is not our one life. It's like right. we were made for eternity. And I think that as long as we're focusing on this life being on our one life, then this is the conclusion that you come to. Mm. But anyway, this to me sounds like the ear tickling philosophy that, um, you know, that the phrase that came to me is like, what, what would I title this book? It's like things I wish were true. Mm. Um, so this ridiculous world is chock full of goodness. It is everywhere. It is yours. It was always meant for your pleasure and participation. No one else is more or less deserving of living this delicious life with gusto. Uh, what does goodness look like to you? Is it a healthy relationship full of connection and joy? Exciting dreams where you put your hand to the plow and do what you are made to do. Remember our, our joy from product, productive joy mm -hmm. what is it? Pleasure, from productive pleasure. Liberation from a toxic uh, person or place. Slowing down, amping up. You are the person to claim it. No one is going to do this for you, especially if they are dependent on the status quo you help maintain. This is your work. Yours, I say. I deserve this wonderful thing, and I don't deserve the lesser thing. Mm. Goodness abounds. It just needs your compliance. I think that passage really summarizes her entire worldview mm. of what she's looking for. It's all about me. It's all about, again, the pursuit of productive pleasure uh, being the highest good. Um, on top of that, I would like to say, if we're going to say, where does her theology come from? I found that there was a passage uh, from what, what I just read was on page um, 69. Uh, when I got to page 91, I, I, I want to say this underlines basically where she gets all her ideas. So first off, we said, what were her ideas, which was that, pas uh, that passage I just wrote. Where does she get her ideas? How does she come to truth? Mm. And this is a passage on page 91. Uh, where she realizes, I am unable to separate policy, theology, rhetoric, theories, or interpretations from the people they affect. I lack all objectivity. I evaluate the merit of every idea based upon how it bears upon actual people. Skipping down a couple sentences. 
I believe loving people fits perfectly under the umbrella of loving God. So when loving God results in pain, exclusion, harm, or trauma to people, then we're absolutely doing the first part wrong. Mm. Um, I say what you have is you have these two commands from scripture that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And um, whereas maybe we would say we're going to interpret everything for loving our neighbor through the lens of what does it mean to love God? She actually flips it and she interprets what does it mean to love God based on what she thinks loving her neighbor looks like? Um, which brings me, I guess, kind of to my last point is if I were to describe what flourishing means to her, um, I would say flourishing occurs when we are working to be the best versions of ourselves according to what makes us happy and what makes other people happy. Mm. hard stop and that right there I think those two those couple of things can summarize basically everything that you're seeing in the book yeah that's that's a good summary that's a very good summary what did you think TC what as you were reading through what were your thoughts yeah well I um absolutely noticed a lot of the same things Hillary did uh but I uh, when I read books especially books like this that are you know, looking like they're going to try to help me with my life. I always start by trying to find what it's promising. Mm. Uh, And usually you can find the promise of a book in the introduction, what it's trying to tell you you're going to walk away with when you turn that final page. Mm -hmm. And I also tried to approach reading this book, um, remembering what I felt like and where I was in a season of my own life when I was bound, broken, and full of fear. Mm. Because I imagine that is the target audience for a book like this, is trying, I would assume that Jen's deepest desire is to bring hope and and some type of an answer for women who are broken. Um, And so, and I I see that, I see her heart of that throughout the book. But, so I was remembering a time in my own life where I was a single mom, this is like my late 20s, a single mom working three part-time jobs, totally broke, totally broken, um, living in a 300 square foot cinder block apartment with my three-year-old and just, you know, feeling alone and and really needing to know the answers to these questions that you when you look at the table of contents of this book, these questions are questions that that women are asking. They're they're legitimate questions. They're they're like you said, worldview questions. Well, who am I? What do I need? What should I believe? Um, you know, what do I need in my life? Things like that. These are these are hugely important questions, and I really tried hard to approach this book in that way. Um, providentially, I was actually reading through the Gospels at the exact same time I was reading through Jen's book. Um, I'm trying to read through the Bible chronologically and just happened to be reading wow. the Gospels at the same time. And I cannot tell you, I mean, even just a, um, a face value read of of the gospels without needing any theological degree or any of that side by side with this book, it's, you're going to notice a completely different message. You're going to notice completely different answers to those important questions. And, um, you know, Jen herself admits that her worldview has been enlarged. She mm-hmm. says that I think in the introduction that her worldview has been enlarged. That that and she re- I think repeatedly mentions that she's changing and growing. That she hasn't arrived. That she, you know, her she's continuing to want to learn and continue to do the work, which is fantastic. I want. I'm a lifelong mm-hmm. learner. I I appreciate the. Yeah 
the journey. However, when I go, you know, this is my encouragement. Like I, I realized at the end that there are so many women who need real answers. And I just, I guess my biggest takeaway was the stark difference between the answers being given from scripture and this book. Mm. And we, we need to decide as readers, um, where do we want to get our, our answers? Do we want to get answers from a woman, a human who has, is changing constantly her view self she admits that Mm -hmm. or do we want to go to jesus's own words and scripture uh that is the same yesterday today and forever and i just felt like it was a real call to to analyze again um you know what is the authority of our lives if she wasn't professing to be a christ follower it'd be fine for her to just share her opinions with me Mm -hmm. but she is professing to be a christ follower and I am a Christ follower, and many women that are going to read this book are just uh, want to love the Lord, and and mm. um, I guess that's where you know I know all three of us are coming from is, you know, if this was Jen's version of her travel philosophies or her best recipes, that'd be great. <laughs> sure, I don't, you know, but this is her trying to answer the life's most important questions, and that is why I just would want to encourage readers to really, really think about that. <clears throat> You know, I've said this before on my podcast that when I'm reviewing a book or when I'm reading a book, uh, especially if I suspect that I'm going to have some disagreements with it, when I'm reading it through, I just, uh, the question I'm asking is I'll highlight things I know I want to come back to and address, but I'm, I'm basically just looking for the author's worldview. I want to know what, what does this person think the world is about? How do they define reality? How why do they think we exist? How do they explain evil and suffering? Like, what do they think's wrong with the world? How do they think that's supposed to get fixed? And of course, not every book is going to give a really concise answer to those types of questions. Uh, but I just do my best to kind of grasp how they view the world. And so I, I was just sort of thinking through the worldview of this book. And the phrase that just kept coming to my mind was the phrase, functional deism. And, and so I want to explain what I mean by that because, you know, deism being the view that would acknowledge there's a higher power, a creator who made the world, but just who, who doesn't really intervene that much after creation. So sometimes it's compared to a watchmaker, somebody who makes a watch, winds it up, and then sort of steps away. And so we've heard the term moralistic therapeutic deism. We hear that term a lot. We've talked about it on the podcast before. Uh, which adds a couple of elements to that that deism. So the moralistic element being uh, maybe giving you a bunch of rules to follow, some work to do, you know, do the work. Uh, the therapeutic element would essentially be the the idea that life's about being happy. God wants you to be happy. And, you know, he's not really all that involved in your life. He's not going to tell you what you should, should or shouldn't do with your sex life. You know, he's not going to police your bedroom. He's not going to ask anything of you in that sense, but he'll be there if you need something. So that's kind of the yeah. moralistic therapeutic deism. And I, I called this one functional deism because it's so pragmatic. There are so many uh, just practical pieces of advice for you to do, things to do, you know, like works to do. And so if we were to look at real specific worldview questions, the first being, why are we here? What, how does the book answer that question? And it's, you know, to thrive, to be fierce and free and full of fire. <laughs> you know, the, the title gives you that one. And, um, you know, what's our authority for truth? How do we determine what's true about the world? And I think this book is really clear, and you both sort of alluded to this already, uh, that there's almost 
no point she makes more strongly than the, than the point that our authority is our feelings. In fact, I would say this book is a manifesto in following mm -hmm. your emotions. Mm -hmm. um, if, she, if I were to say, what does this book say is wrong with the world? Um, I'm not sure she gives a clear answer on this, but it's definitely not you. It's not sin, <laughs> you know? In fact, she's got chapters devoted to exploring that you actually deserve goodness, you know? You, uh, you are exactly enough. You don't need anything else. You're good just as you are. And she even says at one point, trust your good little heart. You know, which, you know, we get the Mama Bear book to see what we think about that. But, you know, but in the Christian worldview, of course, we're created in the image of a holy God. So every human has definitely has inherent value and dignity and worth. But we are also sinners who've marred that image. And so we deserve death. And that's where the gospel comes in. And so, you know, possibly her idea of what's wrong with the world could be something a, a, around oppression, misogyny, structures that create those systems that cause those things to happen, very much like Glennon Doyle uh, in her definition of what's wrong with the world. You know, women are oppressed, gay people are oppressed, and, and that's kind of where she's seeing the evil in the world. And then how is it fixed? And this is what was so clear because most of the book is how is it fixed? And how is it fixed mm -hmm. is just tons and tons and tons and tons of work. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I mentioned this to both of you before we went on the air that there was a chapter toward the end that actually made me feel sad. The, the chapter was about being honest. And I remember Hillary saying, you didn't hate that. And you have a couple of things you were going to talk about in that section too. But my reaction was like, it's so sad because she's essentially spent an entire book, and we'll get into some of this, trashing evangelicals, trashing the Christianity she grew up with, reframing the Bible, l lowering its authority, but basically only to borrow morality from God in the end. So yeah. she's using tons of secular research, statistics, and studies to show you that we should be honest. And, you know, I'm not saying those things are bad, but I just remember thinking, man, you could have saved yourself so much striving if you just read and obey the Bible, you know? And so it mm -hmm. seems like the whole book has this, this sort of theme of work, work, work. So we're going to get into a little bit more in the book, but we have to take a quick break and talk about today's sponsor. We're going to talk about Impact 360's Gap Year program, who's sponsoring the show today. And I actually wanted to go to TC for this because TC has first-hand experience of the fruit of the Impact 360 Gap Year program. So TC, can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about it? I would love to. Uh, the Cannons are huge Impact 360 fans. Um, our two sons have uh, both completed the Fellows Gap Year program where they were invited to come live in an encouraging Christian community where they could also bring their own beliefs questions and struggles um, into an academic year of daily discipleship. And what they were offered there were some sound answers from experts in the field of philosophy and theology and apologetics and science and worldview. And um, they learned from these experts in person, which I have to admit, I was jealous of quite a bit during <laughs> their journey. Um, but they were also taught leadership skills. They were um, instructed on biblical manhood given an opportunity to engage other worldviews, real-life opportunities, both domestically and abroad. Um, they also earned college credit that's transferable, and they would both say that they took away from that program um, lifelong friendships, incredible tools that are going to help them to continue to build their own robust faith, and um, spiritual disciplines that I see them continuing today. So I mm. couldn't recommend the Gap Year program there 
um, more strongly. We love it. That's so great. And so they're, I think they're full for this coming year, but they're taking applications for, I think, beginning in 2021. And so if, if there's a young person in your life that you think might be interested in applying for the Gap Year program at Impact 360, go to impact360.org. And when you fill out the application, you can use my first name as a promo code. That's Alisa, A-L-I-S-A, to waive the application fee. All right, let's get back into this book. So Hillary, you mentioned that uh, in the Mama Bear book, there's a section called linguistic theft. So why don't you help mm -hmm. us help us with what is linguistic theft and where did you see it in this book? Yeah. So linguistic theft is the idea of, so we've got the normal evolution of language where like, this is fun. I just looked up at a, a 1960s um, a dictionary and I decided oh, I'll look up some of the words we talk about in linguistic theft. And one of the first definitions of the word bigot was a man with a mustache. Wow. <laughs> like I just want to take a picture of that and just drop it on Facebook and be like I'm just leaving this here so that would, that would be an example of just the evolution of language where you know some things used to mean one thing that but they mean something else linguistic theft is when you still have a traditional understanding of a word and then a group comes in and they redefine it as something else but they're playing on the fact that most people haven't redefined this word in their head so they mm. can say this word and everybody can sound like they're on the same page but if you really define what they're talking about, they're talking about two separate things. Um, and there was a particular page in here that I just started uh, just underlining over and over again that it was like the linguistic theft page. Uh, let me find it. Which while you're looking for that, that's really not an uncommon uh, sort of tactic in the progressive Christian church. There's a lot of redefinition of words, whether they intend it to be or not. But words yeah. like biblical inspiration, uh, I've even seen words like resurrection and incarnation be used with alternate definitions. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, historically Christians have meant those words to mean. Yeah. Uh, so here, here's uh, the place where I just found myself putting a box around all these different words being like, I don't think that means we mean the same thing. So it's on page 153, kind of towards the bottom. Um so she says, um, is this church a place of spiritual flourishing? Again, what does she mean by flourishing? Because mm -hmm. I would define flourishing, I think scripture defines flourishing as a spirit of um, repentance, submission, and joy in the Lord. But um, is it brimming with good news? I think gospel is one of the most linguistically thefted words, as we, as we saw from um, yes. the leader of Mops when she defined it, when she defined gospel as uh, friends when you're lonely, food when you're sick, and food when your baby's sick. Right. To which I have to be like, what did Jesus get crucified for? Mm -hmm. uh, people are like, no, I don't like food when my baby's sick. Um, <laughs> so is it brim brimming with good news? Again, what do we mean by good news? Is everyone welcome to participate, serve, and lead? And I, and next to this one is like, I think everybody is called to participate and maybe even serve, but scripture is clear that not everybody is called to lead. Yeah. Um, and say, does this organization leave a whole group out by its policies? I'm not sure what it means by that. Would someone experience harm here by the virtue of the polity? So what do we mean by harm? Is it that they get their feelings hurt? Is that what harm is? Or do they do they feel that there's some part of them that, uh, that isn't acceptable to God? Um, 
is that really hurtful to them? Because there's parts of me that are not acceptable to God. And those are the parts that I submit to him. We're called living sacrifices mm. from Romans 12 too. The reason is we keep crawling off the altar. We're like, nah, I don't want to sacrifice that part. Nah, I don't want to sacrifice that part. And part of being a Christian is pulling ourselves back up there and being like, okay, I sacrifice to you. Mm. Um, Good. Uh, is this church wildly obsessed with Jesus? Again, which Jesus are we talking about? Because uh, the ones that are very strong about Jesus, they're also very strong on this idea that he didn't come to judge. And I fully agree with that, where he says that the Lord did not send me into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through through him. But if they recognize Jesus is never judged, they're not going to recognize him the second time because it's very mm. clear when he comes back again, he is coming back as judge. So again, what Jesus are we talking about? Um, if every human being is not safe in its seats, protected, cherished, respected, able to contribute, then that church breeds death, not life. So I would go into what does she mean by safe? Safe from what? Safe from conviction? I, th I think back to um, there was a... God, I'm trying to think of his name. He was the former president of Oklahoma Baptist University that had a, someone preached a chapel service on 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And someone actually came to him and said, you know, I, I felt harmed by this message. And he went off on this rant of being like, the feeling that you're having is conviction. Yeah, if yeah. you're not experiencing conviction, then what are we doing here? And so it's like they, they interpreted harm as, ooh, there's this bad feeling. Right. That I have. So is that how we're defining harm? Is that how we're defining safe? How do we define protected, cherished, respected, and able to contribute? How do we define death and life? Yeah. All of these right here, if you change all of those definitions, you can say whatever you want, and it sounds like you're speaking gospel truth, and you're mm. not. Well, that's a really interesting point. And TC, I know that when we were walking earlier, you mentioned this, uh, this in analogy of food. Uh, that mm -hmm. maybe you could expound on a little bit, um, unless you had something else you wanted to add here. Yeah, well, I definitely want to uh, say a little bit more about, and, and the question you had, Hillary, where you're like, what Jesus are we talking about? Because that was <laughs> one of my big, and I've got a page later on on 208 I would, wanted to talk about. But I yes, I was thinking what we were talking about is I was just realizing again, and this is just, I've got two pens. How many <laughs> pens can I hold? Um, just thinking as I read through the book, again, just trying to put myself in that position of the woman who's hurting and um, and just the, the normal reader here, uh, average reader, myself too, that uh, the other day I was pouring on some syrup for, I made some pancakes, healthy pancakes, and I was putting the syrup on that has zero calories, zero fat, zero Alden sugars, farm, right? zero everything. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is all the flavor with none of the cost. I don't have to, this is just everything I want with, with no negative, no downside, nothing. Um, but then I thought, well, let me look at the ingredients. Cause how can you have something taste this great with no, nothing in it? And I decided to investigate it a little bit more thoroughly, um, and found an ingredient in there that did seem sketchy. And so I went and I did a little digging just to find out about that one ingredient. And I just thought, you know, I think we as women probably do way more of that with our food than we do with the truth claims that are being thrown our way, especially mm. in a book like this. Um, as, and pertaining to the gospel. Now, we're so diligent to look for additives and preservatives in the foods that we put in our bodies 
how much more so should we be diligent to take the time to analyze or, or to dig in and study a little bit, at least a little bit, some of the truth claims that are coming our way, especially when we think, oh, this is too good to be true. And I feel like, like you've said, this is kind of have it your way. This is all the fun, nothing that we have to sacrifice, dig into my desires, that's my flourishing um, gospel. Uh, it, it does sound too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And it probably is. <laughs> so it's like, just dig in. It doesn't actually really sound good to me. I, that's one of my takeaways too, is I actually left feeling more sorry for myself because <laughs> thinking of my little precious self back then in my twenties, not a penny to my name, nobody really in my friend group. You know, I didn't have the privilege of going off on vacations with my friends anytime or, you know, having assistance to help me and things like that. I mean, in it sounds selfish and self-pity-ish, but honestly, I did kind of find myself going, lucky. You mean like, you didn't connect with the fact that she went on a year and a half bus tour with all her close girlfriends and just left the kids at home? That didn't, that didn't feel like every woman to you? I, you know, I tried to find some way to relate in my own life. It was a little difficult for some of that, you know? So I, um, anyway, just another little bit where life, God can kind of just encourage us through life. So syrup can actually be a really profound moment. <laughs> it, it was for me. That's um, good. That'll preach. Just to take the time that syrup to see what's preach. being added or taken away. I mean, that's what the mm-hmm. Bible tells us to look for. Yes. That's a good point. Just, just what's being added and what's being taken away. And mm-hmm. I think that, that, that tells you the health of the gospel. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Hillary, I want to go back to something that you mentioned in the beginning when we were giving our summaries of the book and our general thoughts. You you brought out a quote, and I believe this was on page 91, where mm-hmm. she said, I lack all objectivity. I evaluate the merit of every idea based how on, it bears on actual people. And I think this is, this is a major theme in the book, and I think it's a major theme that permeates her teachings and... Yes. Uh, specifically when it comes to the LGBT inclusion issue. And I, I just want to give a little bit of a, uh, a definition of words here for us so that we, yeah. our listeners know what we mean. I, I don't like the word inclusion, and I don't like the word affirming. And I'll tell you why I don't like that. I'm going to use them anyway because that's what people are used to saying. But here's why I don't think those are fair and good words. Because Jesus is is all inclusive in his offer for mm-hmm. salvation. But he's very exclusive when it comes to if you choose to deny him, if you do not want to be in his presence forever, he will not force you to do that. Yes. And so in that sense, he's inclusive and he's exclusive. So I think that can be a confusing word also mm-hmm. because I know many, many, many just beautiful, Bible-believing, loving Christians that would say to everyone, you are all welcome here. You are all part of, you know, the inclusion of the church if you die to yourself and surrender to Jesus as Lord of your life. And so we invite everybody to do that, uh, no matter what their particular struggle in life would be. And then, you know, affirming also, I don't really like that word because it, it connotates that we are we don't affirm people if we disagree with a behavior. And so I think those words are tricky, but I understand why people use them. But when she, you know, when it comes to her uh, LT, LGBT inclusion or, or what she would call an affirming church versus a non-affirming church, uh, later on this page, she says, so when loving God results in pain, exclusion, harm, or trauma to people, 
then we are absolutely doing the first part wrong. It is not God in error, but us. And so, Hillary, I wondered if you mm -hmm. wanted to comment on this because it seems like she's kind of redefining the word love there. Yes. In fact, uh, the, the passage that came to mind, and I'm not sure exactly where it is, so hopefully we can put this in the podcast notes after we look it up, but um, is the, the passage where it's talking about uh, the, the wedding banquet, where they go and he says, call to everyone, call to the vagabond, call to the homeless, call to everybody, tell them, I, I want my, my banquet full. And so it's this idea of it being open for everyone. And then as the master of the banquet is walking around, he comes across someone who's not dressed for a wedding. Mm. And he says, what are you doing here? Like basically always welcome, but there, there are certain requirements for being part of this. It's like you, you join in the festivities the way that you, the, the way you're supposed to. And so he kicked that person back out um, because basically they did not respect what they were going to. Um, and, and they didn't, and again, you know, we don't want to say this comes down to dressing appropriately, but I would say that this would be clothing ourselves with the righteousness of Christ, mm. where are we, are we uh, behaving like the kingdom? All are called to the kingdom, but then do we uh, live out the kingdom? And if we're going, I think what we have is a lot of people who are saying all are welcome to the kingdom and you can wear what you like. You, you, you can don righteousness. You don't have to don righteousness. You know, everybody's welcome. And that's just not a biblical concept. Um, so yeah, the, the words here that I think are, we got a lot of linguistic theft, pain, exclusion, harm, or trauma. I think pain is kind of, I mean, that's pretty objective. It's okay to cause pain in the sense that, um, pain itself is not a bad thing. It alerts us to when something is wrong. And mm -hmm. so this idea that pain being bad, in fact, I, I wrote something about this on a blog recently. People used to think that uh, leprosy was a skin condition, um, but what they've discovered is it's a neurological condition where you can't feel wow. things. So like if I get a paper cut, I will feel that and I'll kind of favor that that finger. Or if I have my hand on a hot stove, basically what happens is you keep getting all these minor uh, injuries that you can't feel to where your body's just rotting because... You don't know when you're, you have no wow. idea that your arms, you know, broken. You have no idea that your fingers cut all these things and it gets infected. And that's when it turns into something that looks like a skin condition. So this idea of pain being a bad thing, it's like, if we don't have pain and if we try to relieve everybody's pain, that's the idea of basically having spiritual leprosy. Mm. Um, and that does not, that wow. does not end in flourishing. Um, exclusion. Again, like we think back to the passage I just talked about, the, the the gospel is not exclusive in the sense that you have to do something before you come, mm. but it absolutely calls you to take up your cross and follow Christ. And you look at all the letters to the churches in Revelation, it says those who endure to the end, you know, will receive the crown. Those who endure mm. to the end will do this, will do that. And so there is this concept of enduring and taking up your cross. And if you're looking for Christianity, where you don't have to take up your cross and you don't have to endure and you're just trying to live this best life now, mm. I I don't think you get it. So again, that would be the exclusion. Harm, again, what constitutes harm? Uh, what constitutes trauma? I think, uh, again, there there's a line from this movie that I really like, and I always talk about it. Uh, it's the movie Spanglish. And um, there's a scene where Taya Loyoni has... Um, had an affair on her husband and her mom, it lives with them. And uh, her mom says, basically, well, what were you doing? And she says, thank you, mother. I can always count on you to make me feel bad about myself. And the mom mm -hmm. looks at her and says, honey, sometimes low self-esteem is just good common sense. Yeah. Uh, wow. It's this 
year that we've lost the ability to blush over mm. the things that we do. And so if our goal is to make it to where nobody feels bad about anything that we've done or anything that they've done, you know what? Sometimes when you feel that conviction, if you feel that harm, if you feel that pain, that's just good common sense. That's yeah. the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, and if we uh, chat, uh, not the word, if we reject the Lord's uh, discipline and his chastisement, um, that that's the road to folly, not the road to wisdom and not definitely not the road to, to flourishing in the biblical sense at all. Those are some really strong points there, Hillary, because it makes me think about just all of, and we talked about this on a podcast we did together before about the promises of Jesus being that the world's going to hate you, that you will be persecuted, <laughs> that, uh, you know, denying yourself and picking up your cross is a cross is an instrument of death, you know? Yeah. And so that is all going to entail some kind of pain and some kind of exclusion, uh, at, at least from something or someone. If it doesn't, you're not doing it right. That's yeah, all I yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's a, those are some really, really good points there. And so in her definition of love and what it means to love God, this, this is sort of springboarding us into a podcast episode that she did recently with her daughter. And mm -hmm. I want to say, you know, I listened to this podcast episode and I think that uh, it's going to be incredibly persuasive for a lot mm -hmm. of people when they hear Jen's heart, when they hear her daughter's heart. And so essentially uh, you can, we'll put this in the podcast notes too, but you can go listen to it. And it's where Jen is basically introducing her daughter, Sydney, who's in college and uh, she's talking about being gay. And so uh, Jen says, you know, this wasn't just something that just happened. We've known this for a while, but but she wants to now sort of let my people know that this is, this is who she is. And so Jen even said something at the beginning, like, you know, be kind to my daughter, be, uh, be, be gentle with her. And honestly, it's easy to do that because she's adorable and she's mm -hmm. smart, very smart, well-spoken young lady and, uh, and absolutely, you know, get that. Um, and as I was listening though, it was, it was just really kind of heartbreaking <clears throat> because essentially it's one of the most persuasive arguments I've ever heard for what people are calling gay inclusion or uh, LGBT affirmation in the church. And essentially it's a plea. It, it was a plea yeah. to the church to please become gay affirming. And I want to talk about it because um, as much as, you know, I, we are not into tearing down people. We're not here to, to, to make fun of anyone or, or criticize any particular person, but we must address ideas. The Bible commands us to address, address ideas. We are to take captive every thought that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ. We are commanded mm -hmm. to do that in scripture. And this whole podcast raised itself against the knowledge of Christ. I mean, I, I can't put it more, more, I can't soften it any more than that because that's essentially what it was. And so, mm -hmm. um, I'll start off with one. They made some memes on the uh, podcast notes. And interestingly, when we were talking before, Hillary had several of these pulled out as quotes, but for different <laughs> reasons, not to share as a meme. But um, so let me, let me just go to both of you to get some general thoughts of what you were thinking when you were listening through. So I'll, I'll go to you first, Hillary. What were your general thoughts and impressions as you were listening through this podcast episode? Yeah. So one of the first things that I, I, I made a whole bunch of notes and with timestamps and stuff like on it. Uh, and it was funny when you and I talked, he's like, you said, those are the ones that they pulled and made memes out mm -hmm, of. Mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't all of them. Kind of like the, the page where we talked on page 91 of the book, where she talks about how she can't separate, you know, theology from being able to love people and 
all that stuff. There was one quote that really stood out to me from Sydney that to me seems like kind of apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And this really is the legacy of truth that she's given her child. Mm. Um, and that is when uh, Sydney said, I loved all of the Jesus emotions when I was little. Yeah. And so when I hear that, it's telling me that it's like, yeah, you, you can conjure up these really good mountaintop experience emotions with Jesus. And th those are wonderful to have. But if you're basing your idea on truth, on whether or not it gives me these emotions or not, or on the flip side, if there's something that's taking away those emotions, to immediately conclude that that whatever's taking away those emotions is causing harm, is causing trauma, is causing pain, uh, is causing death. Um, that right there to me is basically if we were to take one rock and say, what is the foundation of where, where all these other thoughts came from? The addiction to the Jesus emotions, the feel good Jesus emotions, I would say would be, um, numero uno on, yeah. on where this is coming. And um, she, and she, she was also saying how said, I didn't have a single voice telling me that it was okay. Yeah. That basically her, her sexuality, she couldn't find anyone that was saying that it was okay. And that was devastating to her it was never a thing of where she was trying to find is this true is this something that needs to be submitted it was always on is there a way that that I can get yeah. around this um yeah. and one of the things that really kind of terrified me the most and uh, is uh when she was talking later on um let's see do I have this is around the 1646 mark um, she was saying it doesn't matter. She, she had read some book by someone who's incredibly loving. And so she just devoured this book. He was so loving. He was so gracious, but he ultimately came to the conclusion that homosexuality was a sin. And she said, it doesn't matter how loving you are or what, um, scriptures, um, how many scriptures you emphasize that you come what, up with. Um, you basically, you need to be fully accepting, mm. Um, everyone is children of God. And th that that's not the one I want to point out. I would point out what Jen's response to this was. Mm. She says, that is the worst cruelty. Mm. It would be better to be outright homophobic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this shows us where we as Christians stand, that we keep saying, oh, we just need to love. We just need to love. Mm. This really kind of highlights the thing that it's not our lovingness. Yeah, there's people out there that are real jerks about this. I mm -hmm. will not sure. deny that. But at some point, it's not going to matter how much, how loving we are. It's if that message does not give them what they want to hear, if if it's giving them a cross that they don't want to take up and, and carry, um, it would almost be better, according according to at least Jen, that we outright hate them. Yeah, Isn't that, yeah, That's yeah. Concerning. That was a that was a really concerning statement uh, for me as well. And I think that as I was listening to Sydney tell her story. And, you know, it was an emotional story how she felt and she was alone and, and oh, the struggle yeah. that she went through. I was feeling that with her. Um, but one thing I, I didn't hear her say, and man, if there was one thing, if, if I could talk to her, if I, if I thought for any half of a hot second she would ever listen to this, you know, <laughs> what I would say is I would just ask that you backtrack a little bit and ask yourself what, like Hillary, you nailed it on the head there. What you don't hear in the podcast is her saying, I really wanted to know God's heart on this issue. What does this mean for me mm -hmm. as a Christian, as a Jesus follower? What mm -hmm. does this mean for me? But rather, and this is a quote they pulled from one of the memes, she says, I was scared and alone and I wanted to have it all. I wanted to have my family and God and my future and I didn't think I'd be able to have it all. And that was actually 
the source of her distress. Yeah. And interestingly, I just had a conversation with Sean McDowell, which will be out in a couple, uh, a couple more episodes after this one, about his conversations that he's had with deconverted Christians. And one thing I noticed that he always does is he presses them on what they thought Christianity was in the first mm. place. And he'll ask them, like, did you have mm -hmm. a moment when you became so overwhelmed with your own sinfulness that you knew you needed a Savior and you cried out to Jesus to save you? Did you have a moment like that? And it's always interesting how a lot of times there really wasn't that moment. It was the emotional experience they had in youth group, or it was just some, they were just grew up in the culture and they liked yep. Jesus, but they never, never really had that moment. And when I'm hearing Sydney even say, I took the Bible way too seriously. Like mm. she's talking about doing Bible studies as a young girl. And I, I took all that stuff way too seriously. Um, you know, it I, just as I'm talking to people who might hear that podcast episode and be swayed to maybe become what they call affirming. Just remember that you're a Jesus follower. We're Jesus followers. And what Jesus says goes. And Jesus yeah. is the one who defined marriage as one mm -hmm. man, one woman, one lifetime. And so it's, um, and I believe with all my heart, and I think we see the fruit of this with Christians who are living this out, who experience same-sex attraction. It's like Sam mm. Albury says, God's word for gay people is a good word, but mm. it just may not look like what you thought it was going to look like. So yeah. TC, did you have some thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. I, you know, I, I guess I was kind of just listening to the podcast. Of course, I, I caught a lot of those same things you guys just mentioned, but really just um, listening and kind of analyzing the dynamic between the mother-daughter dynamic. Uh, I, I, because I was just kind of thinking of my own relationship with my daughter. I, my children are all grown adults now. And there were so many things I, I could value and really respect about the way they were interacting with one another, especially Jen's ability to humble herself. Mm. And to I, I think that's huge for parents to be able yeah. to say, I was wrong, to be able to go to your our children and say, I need your forgiveness. Because I think that tears down walls. So there were a lot of things I thought they did. They modeled beautifully for, for just communicating. However, um, you know, I also noticed um, that it, the, the messaging of just seeming like the only loving thing for a mom to do would be to completely affirm and completely change their, their whole perspective in order to love her daughter. That, yeah. that isn't the only option we have as Christ followers. You know, we don't, we don't have to just turn to to affirm and accept and approve of and endorse, give a thumbs up to everything our children desire and, and decide to do, we can also, we can continue to hold firm to the gospel and truth while continuing to love our children. And I know that Christopher Yuan has a great book out talking about how his mom loved him all the way through and continued and is still like his best friend. You know, yeah. I just love that. There's just options. She fasted once a week for him for something like, I don't want to exaggerate here, but I think it was like eight years or something. Wow. And interestingly, in his story, what's so fascinating wow. to me is that before she was a Christian, yeah. he came out of the closet and she actually rejected him, but it was her Christianity that mm. that opened up her heart to love him. And then she began to fast for him and pray for him and just yeah. love him. And and he lives in obedience to Christ to this day. And he and I I don't know anybody that has more joy than Christopher Ewan. The one th other thing I wanted to to notice uh, that I noticed was that um, Jen was really making Sydney the authority mm. on 
church behavior, on, you know, I mean, just allowing her feelings and her experiences to dictate how the church should behave. Again, I just keep noticing this, you know, this choice we're given as listeners or readers or followers, who's going to be my authority? Mm -hmm. Um, A young college girl who is dealing with her issues, her desires and her attractions or scripture. That podcast Mm -hmm. episode made sense of uh, a section in her book that was very confusing to me, honestly, when I read it. And that was when she talked about her husband, Brandon, his mother, uh, going through the process of becoming uh, inclusive. And it only took six months. And I just, I I remember thinking that is really quick to change your mind, especially Mm -hmm. when you're older and you're kind of set in your ways. And so she talks about it and she, she did some science investigation and some theological investigation. And this is what Jen says. She says, the whole six month operation spit her out on the other side, fully affirming her process will go down as one of the greatest examples of spiritual maturity I've witnessed in my life. And if we're going to talk about linguistic theft, I think the word Mm -hmm. spiritual maturity there is completely co-opted because I would view if somebody just changed their mind on such a significant issue so quickly, that would actually read to me as immaturity because, you know, that that's, but I, but I think this podcast episode now makes sense of why that was such a fast transition and Mm -hmm. the power of relationships. It's Mm -hmm. true. I mean, relationships are persuasive. Mm -hmm. Can I say something to that? Yeah. Um, that I would say that this idea of, like, she she really emphasizes how we always need to be growing, we always need to be changing our, our uh, theology. You know, it's this idea of constant change being a good thing. It's mm, like, yes. um, there is something to be said for it, but this is, I think it really misunderstands of how we are to change. That when it talks in scripture, it says that our love mm. may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And so it's like we're to gain more knowledge and more depth of insight. And so this this reminds me of back when I was a science teacher. And even when I was in school, basically every year from, you know, kindergarten on, on up, you start learning the same things, in, both in science and in history. Uh, you, you memorize the same facts. You memorize the same just kind of basic principles in science. And there is no point within science where all of a sudden – you switch and you think something completely the opposite. Right. It's it's always, <clears throat> there's more nuance there than we realized. You know, the formulas and physics, you know, those always bothered me because it's like, they, I'm like, they don't work in the real world. Well, it's because it's dealing with general forces basically in a vacuum, not in the real world, but you're never going to have the formula completely change. Um, it's just going to gain in more and more insight. And so this idea of... Um, I think I think I actually I marked this in the book. Do you know where she's do you know what page it is that she says That's that page on? 160. When while you're looking it up, I, I was actually mm-hmm. thinking this today in the car. Very similar, mm-hmm. I think, to what you're saying. But yeah. you know, I'm not a scientist, so I was just thinking like it's kind of like math. You know, if if you think of constantly changing as being the ideal, well, in a way I get it. Yes, I want to become better at math. I want to learn mm-hmm. two plus two equals four, and then I want to go on to do more complex problems like multiplication and division, and then eventually calculus. I never, never learned how to do that. <laughs> but, you know, the point is, is that my change should be toward uh, getting better at defining reality, gaining more knowledge about reality. But it mm-hmm. seems like that's flipped on its head in the book, where it's almost like the the mature view would be to stop saying two plus two equals four and just start saying it equals five. And yeah. and that's almost the the spiritual mm-hmm. maturity rather than viewing our uh, our 
conforming ourselves to thinking right about the world. It's more like just to change our position so radically, kind of, kind of like you just mentioned. Yeah, I can't find my note on that, but it was something along the lines that, um, you know, she says, if you die believing all the exact same things as you did when you, um, mm-hmm. you started out, then that's, you know, proof that you've really never matured. And like, there's some things to be said on things that you're wrong on, but I would just, I would say it, if your depth of knowledge is the same when you die as yes. when you started, that's the problem because that's what we're going to be learning in is depth of knowledge. And very rarely will the text actually mean the complete opposite of what it seems to mean. Right. Um, and I think that's one of the big lies is that growing in, in your knowledge of the scriptures is sometimes the scripture can mean something completely opposite. Now, there are cases where there's something where this translation just means something different, you know, in, in our language. And that there's that does happen. But for major, major tenets of the faith uh, to say, oh, you know, the the plain reading of it, if we were to really look at it, the plain reading actually is the opposite. That is usually mm. not a sign of maturity. That's usually a sign of compromise. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's good stuff. Well, as we close out here, uh, TC, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about what you mentioned to me on our walk earlier today about the, d- the different definitions of Jesus. Okay, so I noticed um, toward the end of the book, when she's wrapping up here on page 208, I'll just read this one paragraph. It says, truth holds this line from generation to generation. Jesus is love, and in him is life. Through him is great joy. Everyone belongs. It isn't afraid of our questions. It is not insecure or fragile. Press hard on truth. It will hold. It sends us to the front lines because until everyone belongs, we've replaced truth with a lie because truth values every human equally. It favors no hierarchies. Like a miracle, truth continues to set people free. This is one of its greatest strengths. Jesus is true and the world he envisioned is the whole truth. So I I read that and I thought, whoa, I mean, uh, I agree that, uh, that, the world Jesus envisioned is the whole truth, but the world she's claiming he envisioned is one in which everyone belongs and our big gifts are the gift to the world and, and all of this. And I just have to contrast that again um, with Jesus's envision, what he envisions of the world um, as recorded by the testimony of eyewitnesses mm. of, of Jesus's actual teachings. Yeah. So like reading in Luke, this is what Jesus says. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to to give peace on earth? No, I tell you rather division for from now on in one house, there will be five divided three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law and against her mother-in-law. So I'm reading that and I'm thinking, okay, in Jesus's own words, it doesn't seem like he's envisioning the same world that <laughs> mm. Jen is saying that he's envisioning. Mm-hmm. Um, this doesn't, Jesus, I mean, this is just one scripture. Um, here's one more I'll read to show you. Okay. So she's claiming that Jesus's world is one in which everyone belongs. And that's what he's 
that he he wants for us. But in Luke, again, it says, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So I just, you know, I guess I'm just left with this feeling of, you know, we have two starkly different messages here, mm. two different Jesuses, completely different answers to all these questions. And while I value inner work, and I do think that inner work is important and mm-hmm. studying things like some of the great chapters in the book about boundaries and things, mm-hmm. the inner work of scripture is typically not to find our greatness mm-hmm. or how wonderful I am and what I really desire and, and being set free to be me and live my truth. The inner work that bi- the Bible leads me to is one of searching out where I'm where I'm sinning. Where can I repent? Um, if my right arm hand causes me to sin, cut it off, not celebrate it and change the rules. Mm. Uh, so I just, you know, I want to encourage just, you know, uh, us, we've got to make a decision. Are we going to believe Jesus's own words about his world he's envisioning? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to substitute it for this totally different world that Jen is claiming Jesus is envisioning. Mm. Yeah. I'd like to say something that, because this is something I marked on, on where, where she says it favors no hierarchies. This is actually something we talk mm. about in the Marxism chapter in the Mama Bear Apologetics. Yes. That if we want to look at the Trinity itself is based on a hierarchy. If you look at when Jesus is talking about people ruling and reigning with him forever, it talks about it in Genesis 1 and it talks about it in Revelation 22. Um, it talks about in the, in the um, parable of the talents, you know, the ones that, that take take his gifts and, and multiply them. And he says, I'll put you in charge of 10 cities. Well, I'll put you in charge of five. Um, you see authority structures all throughout scripture. Mm-hmm. So this idea that there is no hierarchy, um, you've just denied the Trinity, basically what's happening in the Trinity. And you've denied basically every single institution ordained by God. And mm-hmm. that right there to me is, is yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. side note. <laughs> well, ladies, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I hope this will be helpful for some people. I think that there, I, I love that everybody had a kind of slightly different perspective to bring and, and I'm so thankful. So thanks you guys. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed listening to or watching this podcast, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button, or you can subscribe on YouTube or iTunes or wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash alisachilders and take a look at some of the ways that you can come alongside us financially and with your prayers to help get the message out to more people. Have a great week. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. 
In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.